Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. We've been in the middle of a series called When Jesus is Lord, and we've been looking at the Lordship of Jesus. You know, we see all over society... um, Signs in the middle of goalposts that says Jesus saves or in different settings. What do we truly mean when we say that Jesus is Lord? And we've been taking a look at different facets of our lives. When we say and we live that Jesus is Lord, our lives should look different. Our lives should be transformed. And we've been looking at areas like our finances. We've been looking at areas like evangelism or outward focused life. We've been looking at areas like uh, the church community. What does that mean for a community to come together and to say that Jesus is Lord? And we've been looking at family mass, like where does family mass play into this when we say that Jesus is Lord? And this morning, we're going to take a look at something that I don't think is preached about enough in the evangelical church in America today, not nearly as much as it should be. In fact, It's difficult even to find resources to study what we're going to talk about this morning, which is a real shame. It's a real shame. But we're going to talk about Jesus, Lord of creation. And throughout the course of the series, what we're saying when we say that Jesus is Lord, the challenging point there when we say that Jesus is Lord, it's got an implicit, um, there's an implication there that says that if Jesus is Lord, that means that we are not. If Jesus is Lord, we are not. We are not masters of our own domain. If Jesus is Lord, then we are not. And there's an implied obedience or stewardship in every facet or area of our lives that our lives would cease to orient around ourselves and begin to orient around the life of Jesus and his presence in every single area, whether it be at work, which we're going to talk about next Sunday. That's going to be amazing, right? Jesus at work. Oh boy, that boss that you can't stand, that co-worker that annoys you. There'll be like five people here next week. It'll be super fun. Um, so we'll talk about work next Sunday and then eat some chili together and then we'll move into our Lenten series. But what I wanted to do just to start to begin to orient our hearts around this thing as Jesus Lord of creation is take a look at um, this video. And if you wanted to keep my mic on during it, I'm going to lead us in a reflection that's written by Henry Nowen. And it's about brothers and sisters and the created world. Something that we don't hear a lot of preaching on is um, environmental stewardship, the physical environment that we live in. So we're going to chat about that this morning, but I just wanted to orient our hearts around what we're going to be discussing through this reflection from Henry Nouwen. And you don't have to do anything. There's not going to be any words on the screen or whatever. You just want to be centering your heart towards God and saying, God, what do you want to speak to me this morning? What would you say to me this morning about environmental stewardship? And then we'll unpack the word a little bit and get into it. So why don't we, why don't we roll the video and I'll get started. We can just take breath and breathe. Nowen says this, 
When we think of oceans and mountains, forests and deserts, trees, plants and animals, the sun, the moon, the stars and all the galaxies as God's creation, waiting eagerly to be brought into the same glorious freedom as the children of God, Romans 8.21. We can only stand in awe of God's majesty and God's all-embracing plan of salvation. It is not just we, human beings, who wait for salvation in the midst of our suffering. All of creation groans and moans with us, longing to reach its full freedom. In this way, we are indeed brothers and sisters, not only of all other men and women in the world, but also of all that surrounds us. Yes, we have to love the fields full of wheat, the snow-capped mountains, the roaring seas, the wild and tame animals, the huge redwoods, and the little daisies. Everything in creation belongs with us to the large family of God. Deuteronomy eleven, twelve. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. Romans one twenty. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Father, we pray that you would come. Holy Spirit, we pray as the church has prayed for 2,000 years let your kingdom come and your will be done, Jesus, here on the earth you created as it is in heaven. Come, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would open our eyes, awaken our hearts to your presence. We love your presence. Come, Spirit of God, wake us up today. Amen. Amen. So why does God value creation? His, his creation is important to him. Down to the very last sparrow and the tiny blade of grass, our story as human beings begins in a garden. And it's interesting to note that our story not only begins in a garden, but ends in a garden as well. In Genesis 2.15, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. In the first chapters of the Bible, we see a commission to be caretakers of the gift of creation. Why? Why? Why are we called as men and women, as followers of Jesus, to be caretakers of the earth? 
The first chapter of Romans that we just read tells us that all humanity knows there's a God because God has revealed himself, his very nature, through creation to answer humanity's cry for a loving creator. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood from what was made so that people are without excuse. And I want to set the context this morning really clearly what we mean or what we define as environmental stewardship. Environmental stewardship. Again, something that you won't hear preached on the stage on Sunday mornings in the church, especially in America. And why is that? Why is that? It's become this thing, this beautiful gift of God's creation has become divisive in the way that it's used in politics. And I don't want to shy away from the fact that it has become a political thing. But this morning, what this morning is about is just about taking a fresh look at us being caretakers of the planet that God set us on to live out our days. And what does that look like? Away from politics. And sometimes it's such a big thing, isn't it? For years now, I've been thinking about, man, wouldn't it be great to do like an environmental podcast? I love being out in nature. I love fishing and I love taking hikes through nature and being outside with my family together, feeling the warm breeze in the summertime and even the beautiful snow. Sarah looks out our window the other day and as all the ice is settling down, oh my gosh, the beautiful ice, <laughs> you say not so beautiful, but the, be- the beautiful ice just shimmering on the ground, you know, reflecting the sunlight. I love nature, and I love being outside in the outdoors. What is environmental stewardship? It can become so convoluted sometimes in our culture. I always feel, I don't know if if you're like me or not, but if you, depending on which side of the aisle that you sit on, it feels like I can't do enough for the environment. You know, there's people out there who are like, limiting their carbon footprint by like a million milligrams or whatever. And I don't, I'm like, what are you talking about right now? I'm just trying to recycle or something. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Or if you're on the other side, you're like, well, I'm a, I'm a hunter and I'm a conservative. And so I'm, I'm limiting my harvest, which is a good thing. It's a good thing to be a conservationist, which, which I am. I consider myself a conservationist. But it's only like relegated to like guns and hunting or something. And I believe that God has a third way for us to view environmental stewardship. And that's what we're after this morning. That's what we're after. How does, how does the creator see his creation? And then how do we respond in worship and taking care of that creation? Can we all land right there this morning? Just for this morning? Okay, cool. All right, so what is environmental stewardship? What is environmental stewardship? Good question. And actually, this, there's this beautiful resource that I would definitely recommend you reading. Um, and it's like the only, uh, it's like the only resource in the Vineyard Movement, which 
I hope that is not the case in the future. Lord, send us like people, caretakers of the shepherds of the earth in the vineyard movement in the future. Amen? Let it be. Yeah, because this guy's like 75, but he's amazing. Try, and not to say that 75-year-olds can't, but yeah, they're the ones who started it, right? In the 60s, so props. Saving God's Green Earth by Try Robinson. I'd highly suggest you read this book. It just takes a clean, clear look at the life of Jesus and the creation and our responsibility and really practical steps about how we can be involved in environmental stewardship. Tri Robinson uh, is a retired vineyard pastor from Boise, Idaho. Wonderful dude. I've met him at several vineyard conferences. Awesome heart for creation. The book is Saving God's Green Earth by Tri Robinson. And he defines environmental stewardship this way. He said it's the idea and practice that we should care for, manage, and nurture what we have been given. That's something I think all of us can get behind, right? It's the idea and practice that we should care for, manage, and nurture what we've been given. That's pretty great. That's pretty clear. And so as we begin to see it that way, away from politics or um, the disillusion of the church in all of that, because we have to earn some of our right back here. If we're called to be Christians... Why isn't the church leading the way in environmental stewardship? Because when we look out in culture, we don't really see the church leading the way in environmental stewardship, do we? We don't. So what we're going to look at this morning are four areas of understanding for environmental stewardship. And these are all just basic kind of like, let's dip our toes in, get our feet wet into what it would look like for you as an individual, for me as an individual, for us as a community to engage greater in environmental stewardship. And we, you guys, are in a great city to do that. We're in a great city to do that. The Emerald Necklace, the Cleveland Metro Parks are a gem. And my friend Tom knows all about it. We were just talking about kayaking the Cuyahoga this morning. I said, you don't want to get anywhere near that river right now. It's like 7,000 CFS. You'd be like floating out to, the, to Lake Erie in like 2.5 seconds. But we're in a beautiful city to care for, to practice environmental stewardship. The Cleveland Metro Parks, wonderful job of caring for this gem of all these metro parks that spot the land and just preserving amongst an urban landscape a natural thing for us to get our feet dirty, so to speak, and to get outside and to to experience God in his creation. So we're in a beautiful city to do that. And so these four areas of understanding, we're going to look at various scripture verses. Usually we're just in one, but we're going to hop around this morning. And the first area of understanding is resource and provision. If we're going to understand environmental stewardship, we have to come to see his creation was given to us to use, but not to abuse. Resource and provision. Think of how God chooses to care for us for a moment. God could have chosen any way to care for you and I. We need fed. We need watered. He could have chosen any different means, but he chooses the means of the resources around us to care for us. Isn't that beautiful? That he uses his own creation, whether you're a vegan, vegetarian, 
your hardcore meat eater, you're smoking meat out in the winter like me. God uses his creation to care for us through the created environment. That's a beautiful thing that we can just skip over really quickly if we're not paying attention. Resource and provision. Natural resources like water, these things of like water and air, they're part of God's plan. Like, what did you learn at church today? Oh my gosh, I learned about water and air. I never wanted to go to that church ever. It sounds really boring. Think about it. Water and air. God uses water and air as his plan for caring for human beings. That's, brilliant. That's genius. Unparalleled genius in the mind and heart of God. His plan for resourcing and providing for his creation is through his creation. Check out Psalms 104, verses 24 and 25. The psalmist David writes this, How many are your works, O Lord, in wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is a sea vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro in the Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. Amazing. Creatures teeming in the sea. All around us. Resource and provision. God's care of human beings. A beautiful thing. And in Job 12, 7 through 10, we read this. But ask the animals. Go ahead. Ask the animals and they'll teach you. Or the birds of the sky and they'll tell you. Or speak to the earth and it will teach you. Or let the fish in the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. God loves to care for his creation through his creation. It's been his plan since the very beginning and before time. It's a beautiful thing. Secondly, second point of understanding is accountability. So we've got resource and provision, and the second is accountability. There's got to be some sort of balance for us to use and for protection of the creation. In Deuteronomy 22, 6 through 7, this is like my favorite verse in Deuteronomy ever. Maybe like the only favorite verse in Deuteronomy. Here we go. Check it out. He's talking to the people of Israel. He says this, If you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go so that it may go well with you and you may have long life. What's going on there? (laughs) Here we see God playing divine game warden with the people of Israel, and I love it. You can picture the officers, the game wardens in the Cleveland Metro Parks. Have you seen them going around driving the vehicles? They'll catch you for speeding too. They can pull you over in the Metro. Oh, don't you think you can go 50 on Valley Parkway? Don't do it. 
Don't, you, would ne- you would never do, yeah, we would never do that. Go 50 on Valley Parkway. Gosh, who would do that? Um, <laughs> train of thought, psh, gone. Okay, so God is acting here as like divine game warden. What we see here is God calling into account actual like harvest limits. As I said before, I'm a fisherman, and in, in the city of Cleveland, in, um, in the state of Ohio, it's legal for folks who are anglers to keep two of the beautiful migratory rainbow trout called steelhead that swim up the rivers every fall. They can keep two per day, and they have to be over 18 inches. Why? There's an accountability there so that anglers don't fish out all the rivers and all the fish are gone. God, that comes from God. There's a mirror of who God is in, in that, and there's an account accountability on our part to care for the creation, to not over-harvest in a context like that. But here we see God acting as divine game wording, and he's saying, hey, leave a little bit left over. Leave some left over. We see this in the year of Jubilee. As the people of Israel are harvesting their fields, there's always a concern and an eye out for the margins in God's heart. God cares about the margins, and that's what's going on here in Deuteronomy and all through the Old Testament as they're being taught these Levitical rules to leave, leave a part of the crop, leave a part of the harvest behind so that the poor can be taken care of, so that future generations can enjoy the awe and wonder that we see when we experience nature. That's the principle here in God playing divine game warden is leave some left over. The blessing. God is setting himself up here with the people of Israel like a divine game warning, setting harvest limits. So we must be accountable for the way we handle the delicate balance of nature. It feels so delicate right now, doesn't it? It feels so delicate. And whether you believe in climate change or you don't, you can definitely sense the, the fragility of the physical environment that we live on and live in, and live with. There's a fragility, a a balance that God has set into motion. And we're called to be accountable for keeping that balance. And what a beautiful thing it is that we find the creator in creation. And this is the gospel here. That there's a blessing. This is the third point in understanding of environmental stewardship, is that creation, God's creation, is a blessing. I know that sounds simple and maybe a little trite, but God's creation is something sacred. It's something sacred. Try Robinson, who wrote Saving God's Green Earth, tells his story about how he came into relationship with Jesus. And I love it. It's just beautiful. Back in the 70s, his wife had already become a Christian and started following Christ. And they lived out there in Oregon. And and Tri's wife said, hey, maybe if I take my husband to this special musical or whatever, this church about an hour away was having. So it's, it's like some sort of choir concert or something. And so 
She takes Tri out to this church about an hour away for this musical, and through the course of the musical, he, he kind of laughs at the tech part of it. He, he says they were showing on the screens like pictures of nature, and, and there was one photo that struck him uh, to the core, and it was like as the choir was singing and, and folks were um, singing about and talking about Jesus, there was this photo of this young deer who just had these big penetrations trading eyes. And they were talking about the scripture verse in the Psalms that says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, God. And he left that musical and that service just wanting more uh, experience of God and, and asking God to show himself to him. And he was on board with the the reality that there is a creator God. And he's seeing God in creation, the magnificence of the creation that, that God has made. But he still wasn't sold on the Jesus thing. And check out what Jesus does. So a couple of days later, he's pondering all this. He's out in the woods, and he's on a log. The story's in here. It's brilliant. He's on a log, and he's praying, and he's saying, Jesus, if you're real, show yourself to me. And wouldn't you know it, he's, he heard footprints behind him. Huh? <laughs> Spooky, right? And he's like, I was too even afraid to turn around uh, so what I would see. Like, I asked Jesus to, like, show himself to me, and I'm starting to hear these footprints. Well, he didn't turn around. He kept on sitting on the log praying, Jesus, show yourself to me. And these footprints come right beside him, and no more than an arm's length away, a deer steps over the log, turns around, and with the same penetrating gaze, no more than an arm's length away, looks him in the eye. It puts a new meaning to Romans 1.20 when we read, For since the creation of the world's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Do you know that one of the main ways that people experience God One of the main ways, if you ask Dr. Henry Cloud, there are seven uh, different main ways that people can come into knowledge of God or experience God. And you might not be a nature person, but it is unexcusable to look at a mountainside, to go to Rocky Mountain National Park, to see the great Himalayas, to see the mighty Cuyahoga, and not admit that there is a loving God who has set everything in motion and wants relationship with each man and woman on the planet. So that men and women are without excuse. That there not only is like this divine watchmaker who just like spins it up and lets it go, but there's a loving God who wants relationship with us. And when we get outside and when we see and when we begin to care for the environment, you may be a gardener, um, you may be an angler, you may be a gardener, a hunter. Uh, In in gardening, you see the goodness of the season of God and and you plant the seed in the ground and you wait and you slow down and then you see the sprout burst through the ground. There's resurrection in that and then the flowers, the blooming, the harvest season and the full bloom and destiny of what it means to be human and stepping into some of that goodness of, of God inside of us. There's the gospel in that. 
and just the planting of a little seed. So whether you like to get your hands dirty and garden, or you like to get put waders on and go into a stream and fish, whatever you like to do when you get outside, what Paul is, is saying, what the New Testament is expressing is that there is blessing, there's something sacred in the created world, and we can experience the glory and majesty and splendor of God. That his is the kingdom. He's the Lord of creation. Psalm 24, 1 through 3 is like the best. And David writes this. He says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? There's a wonder and awe that God wants to work about in our hearts. Now we don't worship the creation, we worship the, the, the God who made, who created. But there's a wonder that he wants to work in our hearts and our minds so that when we get outside, when we get in nature, we experience his nature. It's not called nature for happenstance, it's called nature in the first place because it reveals who he is. Even back to the old English etymology of the word nature. It reveals who he is, what he's like, and his power and his beauty. Fourth and last area of understanding is passing it down. Passing it down. In 2 Kings 20, the king Hezekiah does a terrible job and has a short-sighted vision of what it looks like to pass on to the next generation. There's very few good models of passing it on in the Bible. You might say, well, that's the holy word of God you're talking about. Do you know out of like the thousands of leaders who are mentioned in the Bible, only like 25% of them finish well? That's a challenge. Only like 25% of them finish well. And part of finishing well is passing on character, passing on these areas of discipleship, passing on these areas of implied obedience when we say that Jesus is Lord to the next generation. That they would grow up not only to appreciate, but to love being outside, to love being in God's presence, to experiencing the Holy Spirit. That's a huge part, moms and dads, of who we're called to be as followers of Jesus. It's not just to tell of the wonders of God, but to show with our actions, with our hands and our feet, that we're stepping into this thing of discipleship. Because how many of you moms and dads know or are keenly aware like I do, you can talk, talk, talk all day at your kids. But until you do, 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 they won't really listen. This thing of stewardship, this thing of obedience and living our lives as unto the Lord is more caught than it is taught. It's more caught than it is taught. Kids are watching you, moms and dads, watching what you do more so than what you ever say. So when we model how to steward what God has given us, our children will catch that lifestyle and it will become a part of who they are. And that's a challenge point for me because I'm like, what am I actually doing? 
You know, am I actually putting like hands and feet behind this thing that I'm preaching? I'm in the stew with you guys. I'm not saying you, you, you. I'm saying we, we, we. And it just seems like, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I hear uh, messages on uh, climate change or environmental uh, stewardship or caretaking, it just seems like anything I could bring would just be barely a drop in the bucket. I mean, gosh, the um, expansiveness of the problems and challenges that we face, is anything I do really going to make a difference? Well, let me just speak a word of encouragement to you, as I did myself this week, is that does it really matter? I mean, yeah, it matters, but does it really matter? Like following Jesus, like we don't get to decide whether it be environmental stewardship, whether it be our marriage, raising our kids, um, care of the community around us. We don't get to dictate, we don't get to decide what sort of difference we make. Really. Let me say one more time. You don't get to decide... When you, when you say Jesus is Lord, when we say, Jesus, you are Lord and I am not, I don't get to dictate to God what sort of difference I make. I don't get to say to the Lord of creation, hey, I'd like to plant um, 4.7 million trees in the year 2022. I'll have exactly the difference and impact that God wants for me to have. The same is true about blessing in our lives. We don't get to dictate the time or how much or how little blessing and favor come into our lives. That's on God. What's on us is that we would say yes to stepping into these areas of discipleship and saying, yes, Jesus, because you are Lord. Then when we don't worry about what kind of impact or difference that we're making, we can truly walk in freedom and follow him anywhere he calls us. Because then there's not that constraint that's holding us down like, oh, I wonder how good I'm going to preach today if people will ever come back. I don't need to worry about that. That's all in Jesus' hands. What I need to do is be faithful and speak the word of God and preach to myself first, right? That's just one example for like teaching. But you get it. Passing it down is really important.